Amen. All right. Guys, thank you so much for joining us, especially here on this Labor Day weekend. We're so happy that you're worshiping with us. My name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I just want to say again, if you are new or you're just checking out our church, thanks so much for being with us in this space to worship and to hear a little bit more about God's word with us. Um, you know, it's Labor Day weekend, so for some of you, I, I hope that you're able to get a little bit of time off of work or get outside. I know I have this laundry list of like house projects that I'm going to try to crank out uh, on Monday as well, so hopefully you're able to just kind of rest and, and have a Labor Day break. Uh, if you're not, I'm sorry. I wish that, that, that you could have that, um, but again, thanks for being here. Thanks for worshiping, especially if you're new. Um, excited to just kind of share with you even a little bit more about our church. So um, next Sunday, we are going to launch a brand new series on Romans chapter 8, which is honestly one of the most, I think, beautiful and amazing single chapters in all of the Bible. And so we're going to spend actually eight weeks studying Romans chapter 8. Um, but for today, we're actually going to continue just sort of explaining who we are as a church and what we value and prize most. And so for us, plain and simple, that is Jesus. We love and, and prize and treasure Jesus above all else, and that's the thing that we want you to, to really capture if you're new or just checking out our church. We say that our mission is to uh, invite people to find and follow Jesus together. So if you could boil down everything that we do here at H2O into a single sentence, it would be that we invite people to find and follow Jesus together. And so last week, we looked at this story of uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and you might say that that story was like uh, how we find Jesus, right? So if our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus, last week, and, and honestly, part of it is that we wanted to share about our name, because in John chapter 4, Jesus talks about this living water that will make us never thirst again, and that's why we have the name H2O, is because of that passage, but it's the story of a woman who's just doing her thing, and then she finds Jesus. Probably a better way to actually say it is that Jesus found her. And so today, we're actually going to look at a story of someone who's inviting, invited by Jesus to follow him. So last week was kind of like finding Jesus. Today is going to be following Jesus. I think it's interesting when we think about this verb, follow, because in my mind, I immediately go to the connotations of, of social media. I think of Instagram and Twitter and the, the, this idea that we follow people, right? The question of how many followers do you have, um, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, or whatever, or how many people do you follow? And I think a lot of good can be done in those spaces. I'm not here to necessarily like entirely like discredit those social media platforms, but I wonder if our understanding of what it means to follow have been shaped in a certain way because for many of us, we kind of live and breathe in the world of social media. It's possible to follow someone but not actually know them at all. That's one of the things I actually love about uh, social media is that I can be friends with professional athletes I can follow Chris Pratt and other actors, and I can, you know, it feels like I know them, but in reality, I don't at all. Um, we can follow people, but yet sort of keep our distance or use that to kind of check in on their lives. We sometimes follow because we just simply want to be entertained by a person. 
And so when we say that our mission here at H2O is to invite people to find and follow Jesus, the question then becomes, what we have to wrestle with is, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? And the reality is, is that we don't, we don't get to decide that. Jesus gets to decide how, how we answer that question, right? And so I want to go to Mark chapter 10. And again, it's a story of someone who's invited by Jesus to follow him. So in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, I'm going to read those and then I'm going to go back and we're going to sort of look at it piece by piece and draw out some application into our own lives. So Mark 10, 17 starts with, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. What an amazing story. I just, I, there's so many amazing, cool things that are happening in this passage that I'm excited to unpack with you. And so what I want to do is just go through and sketch out from this little interaction that we have here in these 10 verses, what it means to truly follow Jesus and be one of his disciples. The first thing that really captures my attention in this story is that in verse 17, it says that as this man was setting out on his journey, he, he, or as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. He ran and he knelt and he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells young ruler would have probably been a synagogue ruler. And so for a synagogue ruler to Run and to kneel down in public shows a great deal of respect. He is humbling himself. He is expectant that this person that he's asking this question to has an answer. He genuinely wants to know. And it looks perfectly good from the outside, I think, right? He's the right guy asking the right person the right question. A synagogue ruler, right, asking Jesus, God incarnate, the right question, which is, how do I get eternal life? And if this is possible, 
It's, it's as if he's asking the right question and the wrong question at the exact same time. And this is what I mean by that. It's the right question because he wants to know, how should I live? If I'm going to inherit eternal life, if I'm going to experience uh, eternity with God, with my creator, how should I live now? He understands that eternal life is not just something that starts after we die, but it starts in how we live now. And so he's asking the right question, but at the same time, it's the wrong question because it reveals something about this guy's worldview that is tragically wrong. It's flawed. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks that he's capable by himself to save himself. It's as if he's saying, if I could put it in my own words, I would say he's saying, Jesus, just tell me what I I have to do. Tell me what I got to do so that I can go and do it myself. I can achieve eternal life on my own. I can do that. I can work myself into righteousness. Maybe even so far as to say, I don't actually have to love God. I just have to appease him and do what he tells me to do. And I think all of us, if we're really honest, we can, we can struggle with this same thing. We just want to know, what do we have to do? Check off the, 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 the boxes. God, just tell me what I need to do. I'll do my best. I'll do them. I'll try to keep you happy. And then by that, I will achieve enough goodness that when this life ends, you will be kind to me. But spoiler alert, massive spoiler alert, in the entirety of Scripture, this is abundantly clear. Nobody achieves eternal life. Nobody earns eternal life. We receive it as a gift, as a gift from the one who made us. And there's a way that we can live our lives, and this is incredibly dangerous, especially for those of us in the church. There's a way that we can live where we're externally righteous, where on the outside it looks like we're following the rules, it looks like we're doing what we're supposed to do, but yet God is strangely absent. There's a way that, on the, on the flip side, a way that God has always enjoyed, a way that God loves, where we struggle where we sin, where we mess up, where we know how broken and flawed we are, and yet we continue to pursue God in the midst of those. And God cherishes that. So this guy, he's asking the right question, but he's also kind of asking the wrong question. And so Jesus says to him in verse 18, why do you call me good? And I love when Jesus does this. He just turns the conversation. He asks this rhetorical question, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's what I actually really think Jesus is saying with that question. I think the question beneath the question is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you would come and that you would think that you can achieve eternal life? It's like Jesus is setting the stage for what will happen here soon. And he's planting the seeds to say that, Only God is good, and you're not God, young man. I'm God. You can't do what I do. Salvation belongs to me. I give it away because of how good I am. You don't earn it. 
So the question is misguided. Jesus still answers it. And look what he says in verse 19. This is interesting. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He starts listing off the commandments. And as I read this, the thought that goes through my mind is, wait, did Jesus just forget the gospel? He's starting to list a bunch of commands. Isn't the whole idea that we can't live up to those? We need God, and yet he starts listing them off. What is happening here? What Jesus is doing is he's using the law in the way that it was meant to function. One of the primary ways that the law was meant to function for God's people throughout history is to be a mirror that shows us how broken and sinful we are. A mirror gives us an accurate view of who we are. It reveals that though we are made in God's image, though we are capable of good, we are also tragically broken and sinful. And ultimately, the law reveals the depth of our need for God. Because even in our righteous acts, even in our attempts to do good, there's often selfish ambition that's intertwined. And I wonder if maybe what's more heinous to God than just blatant rebellion is the person who acts righteous, lives a squeaky clean life on the outside, and yet thinks that he doesn't need God. And Jesus wants this guy to see how badly he needs him. But watch what happens. Verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's shocking. What he's basically saying is, Jesus, yeah, I'm good. The whole law, all those things that, you know, that, that, that God set up and gave to his people in history, all of those laws, all the Mosaic laws, I've kept all of them. Ever since I was a little kid, I've kept all the laws. He's claiming to have never, ever, ever, ever have broken the law. I have kids. My wife Tiffany and I have four kids. They're masterful at breaking the law. And even in their innocence and in their kind of, the, the, their desire at times to honor us as parents, they love to scheme. No one has to teach, at least my kids, how to manipulate, how to twist the truth, how to lie and deceive. Our, my kids are, our kids are so good at like, honoring the rules while at the same time defying them. So they find ways to like honor like the letter of the law but totally violate the spirit of the law. Uh, if I had more time, I could just list off a whole bunch of ways that we see our kids doing that. And we love our kids and God's working in their life, but no one has to teach them that. It's just part of the sinful, broken nature. But this guy is being so audacious. He's saying, no, I've, I've actually kept all of those, Jesus. And look at what Jesus does in verse 21. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, I read this, and I think, oh my gosh, Jesus, sink your teeth into this guy. I mean, who does he think he is, right? He's claiming to have basically never really sinned. And so I read that, and I think that it's going to say, And Jesus, looking at him, was repulsed by him. Jesus, looking at him, rebuked him. 
you arrogant, self-righteous, grotesquely proud man. You should have known better. If nothing else, if nothing else, you have read the Psalms. You are a synagogue ruler. You know what David said, right? In sin did my mother conceive me. And yet Jesus in that moment loves this guy. This is the shocking grace of God. That even in our most self-righteous moments, when we try to defend ourselves, when we convince ourselves that we don't need God, that we're good, that we can hold it all together, even then he is patient with us and he pursues us. He looks upon us with his sweet, transforming love. And friends, this grace by itself, alone, is our only hope. You can choose to live by your performance, like this guy was trying to, but you will end up either in despair or in conceit. Because when you're not doing it, when you're not performing, you will be in despair, but when you are doing well, you will puff up and become prideful. And you will oscillate between each of these, and it's a miserable way to live. And Jesus is setting this guy up to say, there's another way. You don't have to live that way. There's another way. It's called grace. So verse 21, forward a bit, he says again, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus knows that this man's problem is not his performance. This man's problem is his worship. It's not his performance. He's probably on the outside a pretty righteous person. But the issue is not that. The issue is what has his worship. And I think the guy gets it. I think he's piecing it together that what Jesus is saying is that if you love anything more than you love me, Right, If you love anything more than God, if something is on the throne of your heart above God, then you cannot follow me. And the reason I think he gets it is because he walks away sad. He gets it that God doesn't share the throne with anyone else or anything else. His heart was ruled by something other than God. His heart bowed to something else. And Jesus knows something, right? He knows that, that something that we all ought to know, that sin, in essence, all sin is idolatry. It's making ultimate, letting something onto the throne, which may be good, that shouldn't be there. To elevate something to a place that is only reserved for God himself. And see, God is after our hearts. He's not just after our, our obedience and following these rules and, and doing the right things. He wants to be the king of our hearts. He wants to transform everything about us from the inside out. So look what happens in verses 23. It says, And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And this, 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 the disciples were amazed. And the idea, the connotation there with amazed is like shocked, not sure they understand, confused. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
there's a change there. We'll talk about that in a second. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Did you see what happened between verses 23 and 24? Jesus went from how difficult it will be for the rich to just how difficult it will be. He's broadening it. It's like he's saying how difficult it will be for anyone who bows to anyone else to enter the kingdom. It's not just about wealth. It's about anything that will climb up to the throne of our hearts. Anything that will be in that place that only God should have. The reality is is that anything can become our God. Good things, bad things, you know, things that are neutral. For this guy, it was his wealth. And I wonder what it is for you. What rules your heart? What orients your life? What drives your passions? What sets the trajectory of your life? Is it God? Is it obedience to Jesus? Is it discipleship to Jesus? Is it being about the work of God in this world? Is it being about the mission of God? Is it becoming more and more like Jesus for the sake of this world? Or is it something else? Is it wealth? Is it popularity? Is it the accumulation of possessions? Is it chasing after some dream that that you have that in itself is not bad, but it's been elevated to a place that it should not be? Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. So now they're just really freaking out. And he said to them, and, and, and they said to him, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. And that's exactly why this guy walks away sad. Because he can't do it on his own. He cannot, not by any amount of obedience, outward obedience, following rules, he cannot manufacture his own salvation. We end up giving our lives over to false gods. Some look religious, some look honorable, but at the end of the day, they're all counterfeit. They don't save us. But with God, it is possible. Only God can bring us from death to life. Because the reality is that outside of Jesus, outside of the intervening work of God, we are dead in our sin. We don't just need to go from being okay to being better. We need to go from dead to alive, and only God can do that. How does he do it? How do we truly follow him? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. I am so convinced of this the longer I walk with Jesus, that we will be obedient, we will follow, we will sacrifice, we will sell out for God to the extent that we fix our eyes on Jesus. When we see the God who hung on a cross for us, when we see the God who would willingly, silently suffer, who would come to teach us and heal us and forgive us, the God who would endure the wrath of the Father to bear the iniquity of my sin and the sin of this whole world and all the injustice and all the evil on his shoulders, that he would bear that and he would extend to you and I mercy and forgiveness. 
a God who wants to walk with us in this life, who is not far off, but he wants to draw us near, and he wants to speak to us, and he wants to change us, and he wants to give us abundant life. When I think about that Jesus, I want to follow him. I don't want anything else to be on the throne. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. Here's what I believe. I believe that when we see Jesus for who he is, we will give him everything. We will refuse. We will ruthlessly refuse to allow anyone or anything else to be in the place reserved for him. And we will joyfully surrender whatever might be there. That's what it means to follow him. It is not easy and if you've heard that, that following Jesus is really easy, then you've been mistaken. It's not easy, and yet it's life. It's joy. It's what you were made for. And so I wonder if there's some work that God needs to do in your heart today, if there's a surrender that needs to happen. If you're not sure, maybe this question will be kind of a good litmus test. What would make you walk away sad if Jesus asked you for it? Put yourself in that story. Maybe it's not wealth for you. Maybe it's not all the possessions. But what would make you sad if Jesus asked you to surrender it? I keep thinking back as I close to this line. And looking at him, he loved him. There's something like really astounding to me that Jesus looks at this man. He loves him. But what comes out of his mouth next totally wrecks this guy. And he walks away sad. The most loving thing that God can do for us sometimes is to wreck us, is to ask us to let go of the things that we hold so dear, that we cherish. Some of them are good things. For some of us, it's sin that we just need to flee from and we need to repent and acknowledge and ask God to forgive us and ask God to be on the throne of our hearts. For some of us, it's good stuff but it's still stuff that's in a place above God himself. The most loving thing that God can do sometimes is to ask us to let go and to surrender. So our dream as a church is to be a community full of people who treasure Jesus above all else, who over and over and over again are surrendering any of those things that have climbed to the throne of our hearts and to declare that we belong to Jesus, that he alone is our, our, our prize and our treasure. And so with that in mind, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenge to follow you. God, it's not easy, and we, we admit that, we declare that, and we tell you today that we cannot do it on our own. We thank you that Jesus came and lived and died and rose victorious for us, defeating death and all that stands between us and you. God, would you make us a people who truly desire to follow you? Would you be on the throne of our hearts? Lord, whatever that work may be that you need to do in us, even today, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do that, that we would maybe tell someone uh, something that we've never told them before, that we'd come clean, we'd be honest. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that your mercy 
is enormous for us and that you're patient and kind. Lord, teach us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.